0: We've got investing advice for our younger selves and a look inside the sexy world of barcodes. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Hey, happy Monday. Happy Marathon Monday! Shout out to the marathon runners in Boston, and the people cheering them on. Yes, sir. I'm in the latter group. (laughs) I was streaming a little ESPN, watching it uh, down the stretch. Pretty, pretty close finish on the men's side. We're gonna dip into the full mailbag, but I want to start with Roblox because for the last time ever, Roblox shared monthly metrics, and on the surface they look good: daily active users, hours engaged estimated revenue, all up double digits year-over-year year for the month of March for Roblox, and yet shares down 12%. What is going on here? <laughs> uh, this is something that Roblox announced in January, that, yeah. that, that, hey, we're going to stop reporting monthly metrics, March will be the last month. I'm not sure what the surprise is here. Well, I don't think the surprise has anything to do with not announcing the
1: metrics. I think that's that's something. I mean, we've seen we've seen many companies uh, do that. I mean, I think we've seen what Zillow a time ago did that. Netflix even did it. So I don't think that in and of itself really uh, dictates how a company is going to perform. And, and honestly, I, I don't mind seeing that. Because if you think about it, publishing these monthly metrics, I mean, it can be enlightening for us as investors. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're not looking at these businesses through a monthly lens, right? We want to see them create value over longer periods of time. Now getting this data can help paint a picture, uh, but it is very short-term focused in nature and so I don't think that's really the concern. I think the concern really is two things. Number one, Roblox, one of the biggest risks for a company like this today at its stage is going to be valuation because it's still an unprofitable business. It's still kind of getting its its sea legs, so to speak, right? And and so it's working towards meaningful sustainable profitability, which is going to make valuation a bit more of a risk with a business like this and then secondly i think the one metric that probably has most investors attention from this release it's the it's the future right it's it's looking at this the bookings uh, the the average bookings per daily active user and we saw that come in at a range of minus 1% to plus 3% and historically that number has just been much much higher but it's it's also, I think it's it's to be expected. I mean, this is a company that really benefited, I think, over the last few years uh, from this stay-at-home economy, right? From this digital economy, and you even see it in their 10K that they filed at the end of February. They noted in the 10K they've experienced rapid growth in prior periods, due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic, and these activity levels have not been sustained. Growth rates have moderated. For example, they call out bookings increased one hundred. 171% from the year ended December 31, 2019 to the year ended December 31, 2019. 2020.
0: You're saying that's not sustainable. They can't just keep doing that year over year. <laughs> 171% is awful
1: nice, and if it could sustain that, I guarantee you the share price would be in a different place today. But I think it just goes to show you that this is a company that really pulled a lot of growth forward, like many businesses have. And what we're seeing here today is that future. Right is looking a little bit more tepid. That's understandable, right? And and I certainly it it, it would make sense as to why investors might be taking a breather on the stock today. It's kind of a one-two punch, right? Looking at the future, right? Growth isn't going to be nearly as robust as it has been in the past, at least in the near term. And and then you you add that to to sort of the valuation risk that comes with a business like this, and and, in you know you get
0: these these types of knee-jerk reactions. And Yet, Roblox is still a $25 billion company, which yes. makes me wonder if they're, in some ways, stuck. I hear everything you're saying about the unprofitability and all that, and if this company were even smaller, if it was a $7 billion company, there would be probably a bunch of companies looking at it as a potential acquisition target but it's 25 billion dollars and that limits the universe of businesses that can do that and somewhere else in the multiverse microsoft is a company with deep pockets looking at this but they're still dealing with trying to complete their acquisition of activision blizzard so that's not going to fly so is that do you think that's part of what has the stock where it is. It's one more reason for some investors to just say, "Mm, I don't see what the catalyst is here, because for smaller businesses, a potential catalyst is an acquisition, and I just don't see that in the cards right now for Roblox.
1: Well, yeah, I do agree, and I mean, let's remember it used to be a much, much larger company, even even uh, just a couple of years ago, and and, and even today, even at twenty four, twenty five billion dollars market cap, it's still a very large business with with a very glass have full valuation even today. But I mean, this is one of those quintessential metaverse ideas, right? I mean, this is gaming, it's immersive, it's a whole nother world, so to speak. And in these these digital worlds that they help build uh, on, on behalf of all of the users, they utilize a network of more than 8 million active developers, and they they made money a number of different ways, but ultimately, it's by working with these creators to help them monetize experiences. And so you've got a subscription service there and robot. Roblox Premium. You've got mega brands that are actually building unique marketing experiences on the platform. They have their own virtual economy that they serve with their, their own currency called Robux. And so I think that yes, on the one hand, I'm sure there are a lot of larger companies out there that would love to have this capability within their own universe. I don't think they would like to do it at the valuation. It's just a, it's a lot to chew. It's it's a lot to bite off. Um, but by the same token, I, I don't think that Roblox is necessarily a business that wants to go that route either. I mean, they do a very good job of reinvesting back in the business and building out this capability. I mean, let's remember that e- while that one bad piece of news, right in in the 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 bookings i yeah, that that's 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 a little bit of a downer, but I mean when you look, you said it at, at the open there, what so many so many of these metrics look so good. I mean, daily active users up 26%, hours engaged up 26%. You exclude currency impacts, revenue up in a range of 16 to 22%, bookings up 25 to 29%. So I mean, it's not like this isn't a business that's performing. It just is a business that is still dealing with sort of the hangover over the past couple of years. And given where it is today, it's still going to need to invest a lot into the business to continue building out capabilities and offerings right i mean if you look at the cost of goods for a business like this they have this this exchange right this this creator exchange that ultimately feeds in to this this metaverse so to speak right this universe that that is roblox that makes up about 28% of total revenue and that's going to be something they'll have to continue to pay because they really depend on the creators to build this business out but then when you look at things like sgna research and development where those today are a very high percentage of overall revenue the thesis at least in part is that over time they'll be able to start pulling back on those levers and really start to demor- demonstrate a little bit more leverage in the model. Because it does feel like they have the creators and they have the users, and we know how big of an opportunity gaming really is. And if the tailwinds here—not only really in the metaverse, but just gaming in general—if those tailwinds continue, that it feels like Roblox is going to be a business that benefits from that. But again, very early stage valuation is going to be a risk of this business until they can get to sustainable and meaningful profitability. So it, it may be a little while.
0: Our email address is at fool.com. got an email from Sem in Amsterdam who writes, I'm 29 years old and about to celebrate the two-year anniversary of the start of my investing journey. Although it's been hard to celebrate investing over the past year, it has been incredibly helpful to have The Motley Fool on my side. As someone with decades ahead of him to invest, it would be great to get your perspective on what kinds of investments could be right for me as the market has currently turned away from growth at all costs and turned to companies with profits, efficiency, and positive free cash flow, I'm wondering what to do in this environment. If you could go back to being a 29-year-old investor, how would you balance investing in more Rule Breaker-type companies that may not be profitable yet or are losing money, and investing in more stock advisor businesses that are a bit larger and proven and have profits? Uh, Sam, thank you for listening. Thank you for the question. Great question. I love the the focus on the time frame. Here's someone who yeah. realizes there are decades ahead to invest, and the focus on balance, which is, I think, if I were to go back to uh, advise my 29 year old self, I would. Uh, yeah, I would. That would be one of the messages. Is look for some amount of balance. The balance can shift over time, and maybe as you get older, you move to more stable dividend payers, that sort of thing. But but going all-in on one style of investing, I don't know, I think it's because we've been doing this podcast so long, Jason, and we've just, I think, personally, I've heard from too many people who just burnt out they yeah. <laughs> they were in their 20s they went all in on one type of investing they got burned and then they just walked away yeah
1: yeah i fully agree i mean we we do talk a lot about you know investing when when you start out younger you know that gives you so much time right to take advantage of and in so typically we say you can take on more risk as a younger investor, because you have more time to make it up, and that's true to an extent. I agree with it to an extent, but but that also doesn't mean that you should just max out your risk and just invest in those high-growth ideas that may or may not pan out. I mean, I think the word balance—it's just a really great word uh, when it comes to investing. And I think at that age, you know, whether you're 29 or 59, I think it's always good. To look at your portfolio and try to look for balance between growth and stability. And I think it ultimately is very important to have a little bit of both, even when you're younger, right? I think building up some of that income and stability exposure in your portfolio at a young age can really pay off down the line. I mean, imagine you get to 50 or 60 years old, and and, and now you're bringing in $10,000 or even more in dividends each year. Right, and depending on what what kind of account you have that set up, and that could be that that could be ten thousand or more dollars in dividends that are just you know you don't even have to worry about taxes. I mean, it can be extremely powerful. It can give you money to reinvest, or it can just provide you a nice little stable income uh, stream there as you as you look toward retirement. And so, you know, one thing I always like to look at, and I go back to it all the time because it's such a valuable resource. Here, we have a service here called Rule Your Retirement, run by our own Robert Brocamp. Uh, in, 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 there, he has model portfolios in the service, which really I think help break down sort of how you might consider looking at your your balance depending on what stage of life you're in. And it breaks down essentially into three different stages: you're more than ten years out of retirement, less than ten years out of retirement, and then fully in retirement. So if you have more than ten years until you're even considering retirement, uh, the, the portfolio breaks down where you would be looking for. And again, this is model. This is not in stone, but just something to work with here. You might look at having 30% of your portfolio ad- allocated to large caps, 17 to mid caps, and 17 to small caps with the remainder, a mix of international stocks, real estate, and bonds. Now, if you're within 10 years uh, to your retirement, maybe you're looking at 30% large caps, 13% mid caps, 12% small caps. Right, You're taking a little bit more of that risk off the table. And then in retirement, maybe you're looking at 30% large caps, 10% mid-caps, 10% small caps. Again, pulling back on some of that risk and, and depending a little bit more on stability. So that can give you some idea as where to start. But but again, I, I do love the idea that even at 29 I mean, I would try to counter every growth stock you buy with some type of income stock, some type of dividend stock. If you buy a growth stock, try next time to buy something like an income stock. And if you can alternate, that that could be a way to sort of achieve that balance through time. And it makes it certainly makes going through stretches like this a lot easier when you have some of that stability in your portfolio, and you know that even though stocks are kind of going sideways, that you're still bringing in some steady income. And then one final thing I'll add is just as you know, Chris, my my daughter's. you know, I got them to, into investing years ago, I guess really it's, it's a decade or more uh, now that they've been invested. And, and One rule that, that I force them to adhere to as I help them build their portfolios is that once they buy a stock, that's it. They can't buy that stock anymore. The next stock they buy has to be a different stock right so once they buy starbucks they can't buy starbucks again even if it's a, scream, a screaming value they have to buy something else and that really is meant to help them get that portfolio up to 30 different holdings before they start adding to existing positions because i think once you get to that 25 to 30 different holdings that really gives you i think a lot of diversification as long as you're kind of working on that balance along the way and they don't own just Growth or just income, right? They have a nice mix of it all. And so I think that's one way to look at it, too, is, is in order to get to that 25 or 30 uh, different, different holdings in your portfolio. You can't be adding to existing positions along the way, really, until you get to that 25 to 30 uh, holdings in your, in your portfolio. So maybe, maybe consider doing that. Um, but, but again, I think a great question, a great way to look at it. I know that if I were to go back to when I was 29, one thing I would change. And I'm not regretting this, but I think one thing I would change, I would I would focus a little bit more on building out that dividend presence in my portfolio early on. Earlier on than I did because it just it can be extremely powerful. And if you think about it too, every quarter you rake in those dividends, that effectively brings down the cost basis of the stock that that you purchased. And if the longer you own them, the cheaper that stock gets. And as long as you maintain sort of a nice diversified approach to those dividend holders, right? Don't just invest all in banks. Right? because that's a sector that we've seen very clearly can, can go through some hard times. But if you have that dividend exposure nicely diversified, it can just be a steady, reliable stream that can really pay off when you get into your older years.
0: Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Zebra Technologies is a company that sells logistics hardware and software. and I know that sounds a bit dull. But you know what's not boring? The fact that over the past five years, shares of Zebra Technologies have doubled the S&P 500's return. Asa Sharma caught up with CEO Bill Burns to talk about robots in fulfillment centers, as well as potential growth areas for the company.
2: I wanted to begin by discussing what the company does today. Many of our Motley Fool members may be familiar with Zebra's core technologies like barcode scanning and RFID smart labeling. But in recent years, Zebra has expanded into a lot of other business lines from rugged tablets to smart scanners uh, for retail environments and even autonomous mobile robots. Now, I've heard you mention in interviews and earnings conference calls that this comes together this whole thing comes together in something Zebra calls enterprise asset intelligence vision can you explain this vision for us
3: we think of zebra as really empowering organizations in you know to really thrive in an on demand economy and enterprise asset intelligence we define as you know every frontline worker and asset within a business um, really at the edge of productivity within enterprise to be visible, connected, and optimally utilized. Ultimately, so businesses can be as effective and efficient as possible. And today, 86% of the Fortune 500 companies are our Zebra's customers today. Our markets span across retail and e-commerce, transportation logistics, manufacturing, healthcare. And we talk about, you know, seeing Zebra in in everyday life, scanners at the front of supermarket checkouts, um, mobile computers, you know, when uh, e-commerce orders are being picked or or delivered to customers' homes, printers inside, you know, healthcare, um, improving patient outcomes. And, you know, most recently we've invested in in new areas, as you mentioned, so warehouse automation through robotics and software for retail associates to, to leverage You know, them with technology inside the retail store and machine vision are three new investments areas we've made, you know, across Zebra. But we think of our business as really making supply chains, you know, more efficient and effective. We think of it as improving customer, you know, um, engagement and outcomes within, you know, healthcare. And we think of improving the technology usage of frontline workers each and every day within, you know, their
2: work environments. So would it be fair to say that some of the strengths the company built, let's say, way back when, in the 70s and 80s, the idea of tracking assets, some of those skill sets and strategies have been parlayed into thinking about how people uh, interact throughout an organization, how they interact with customers and vendors, how assets interact. Is there something of the old DNA still present in this uh, modern version of Zebra that we see?
3: Yeah. I mean, we think of our core you know, technologies as really our, our mobile devices in the hands of frontline workers. We think of scanners, as I said, in the you know, inside, you know, uh, picking e-commerce orders or in the front of store retail. We think of printers used in you know, printing labels for e-commerce boxes and, and parcels to, to hospital wristbands. That's our core technology. And it still continues to, to grow today. We think of expansion markets that you mentioned, things that are closely adjacent to what we do in those areas. So, you know, rugged tablets, we think of smart supplies, um, we think of RFID technology, all is adjacent to what we do in our core, and those areas grow a bit faster than our core markets. And then three new expansion areas we've invested in, as I mentioned earlier, think of robots working with workers inside an e-commerce warehouse to more effectively pick orders. Think of machine vision used to do inspection on, you know, an assembly line and think of software on those mobile devices used by retail associates, you know, today in their environments so that a manager in a retail store can collaborate with their workers so they can send tasks to retail workers. So, you know, we think of the portfolio as really the breadth and depth of the entire portfolio, leveraging our core strengths from the past and things like track and trace, as you said, or, you know, improving patient outcomes, but leveraging that into new products, software, and services that ultimately expand the use cases of our solutions within our customers' environments.
2: Well, briefly, we've talked about Fetch, which was the third company that I had mentioned to you before we started taping that I was interested in. Um, maybe just describe it and then we can move on. What exactly it does? So these are autonomous mobile uh, robots in, I imagine, factory settings. Yeah, there are actually two different types of settings. This is the
3: primary use case? Think of a factory setting or a manufacturing setting for things like goods transport, right? So fulfillment of you know goods back to an assembly line. So think of uh, lug nuts that on the uh, station within automotive manufacturing ultimately that you know is putting tires on the car, right? Is to take goods to the you know the actual assembly line. So goods transport is one application. The other application is e-commerce picking. So typically within a warehouse and e-commerce. A worker in the past would work, you know, walk 10 miles a day, literally pushing a cart picking orders across the entire warehouse. Today what you do is you position warehouse workers in the individual aisles. They have a mobile device um, that they've been using in the past today as well, typically a wearable or a ring scanner. And the actual robot comes to the iron which the worker's in, taking steps out of the picking process. And when the worker actually picks the item, the robot stops next to where the pick needs to happen. The worker picks the item, scans the item, and ultimately puts it in a bin on the robot. Ultimately, it moves to the next worker a couple aisles over who picks the next item for that that, uh, order. And eventually, it takes the order back to the packing area to be actually packed out and shipped to the end customer. So, taking steps out of the process and ultimately being more efficient, allowing workers to focus on more specific tasks. And we think of directing robots and humans both, leveraging those mobile devices that the humans are using today, you know, workers inside the environment and robots together makes the pick most efficient within that environment. So think of goods transport, and think of e-commerce picking as our two primary use cases today.
2: Everything that we've talked about so far uh, keeps skirting around the edge of one topic, which is artificial intelligence, uh, whether in a robotic setting or working in a retail environment. it's. Become such a hot topic lately. AI, where interest in AI has really exploded this year with the emergence of of ChatGPT. But I see Zebra's use of machine learning and artificial intelligence as as more grounded in, in practical applications, like the computer vision that your machine vision you were mentioning earlier. Can you discuss yep. some of these technologies and how they play into your major product lines? Or if I'm mistaken, and there are some exciting generative ai product that you guys are also working on Uh, please tell us about that as well so we think of you know
3: leveraging ai across the portfolio and as you said machine learning is a great example of that leveraging vision systems right ultimately to and then training and learning around that and then using ai algorithms ultimately to make decision making so as you said we use it across the entire portfolio we use it inside things like you know optical character recognition you know uh, um, within um, our machine vision portfolio, we use it to learn and train a model inside, you know, inspection within manufacturing. We use it to train robots, autonomous mobile robots, you know, within an environment and be able to f- map out that environment, ultimately learn the environment, and be able to be autonomous, you know, within in that environment. So there's multiple end to AI software we talked about leveraging it inside planning within retail. There's many different use cases across our business that we use AI and machine learning and ultimately AI techniques to be able to allow our customers to make better decisions. And you know, we talk in our business really about the idea of, you know this visibility and automating and digitizing our customers' environments. If, if you can sense what's happening at the productivity by giving everything a digital voice and then ultimately analyzing that data in real time and then being able to take action associated with that then you can truly have an outcome right our customers tell us it's not good enough to tell me the retail shelf is empty we need to be able to tell me that this send a worker to that shelf tell the worker either the goods are at the top of the shelf they just need to bring them down where the consumer can you know um, purchase them or they have to go to the back of the store and bring those out and fill the shelf or an order needs to be placed back on the distribution center to replenish the products back into the store before they could put on the shelf. So think of it as sense, analyze, act, and the idea that machine learning and AI is a way to actually ultimately analyze the data we're sensing in real time by digitizing the environment. And then AI is the technique to do this analytics ultimately, and then drive to the best outcome within customer's business so they're more effective and more efficient in what they do each and every day.